You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Well, Jamie, welcome back to Real Faith Stories. I am uber excited to talk with you particularly about the book you just released. Welcome. So glad to be back with you, Brian. Really excited. Thanks for having me back. For those that have not heard of you, Jamie, I would love for you to share your backstory, and then we're going to dig into how you wound up in the whole space of talking about identity and then take a look at your book. Yeah, thank you. Um, Grew up in Washington, D.C., age 14, went to a movie and had this encounter, which I didn't, wouldn't have called God at the time, but deeply spiritual, where I just knew that I was being invited into being a police officer. And so that's just what I committed my life to. And at age 17 in the hospital, met this amazing nurse who was the first person that actually modeled Jesus to me in such a way that I was so inviting. My prayer it was interesting. It wasn't that wasn't Jesus come into my heart? It was God. Can you make me a police officer like she's a nurse? What was it about her interface with you, and her interactions with you, that was so profound, so deeply touching? She was a physical therapist. Like that, I think that was her actual vocation in the hospital. I had suffered a pretty severe leg injury from a wrestling tournament, and I was afraid I couldn't pass a police physical. So I was going into my last year of high school, and I was afraid that when I graduated, I would be able to pass a police physical. That was my big concern. And she was the one that was going to kind of work with me physically. And the morning after the surgery, I was so mad and angry and bitter. And the doctor said, you're not going to play sports anymore. He said, I don't know about a police physical. So she came in and she said to me, you know what, your body will heal from the injury, but from it's the bitterness that'll hurt you. I just let the bitterness go out and I just ripped her. I just cussed mm. her out chewed her out. She smiled at me because she knew she wasn't going to be able to say anything to me in that moment. So she just walked to the door and she looked back and she smiled at me and she said, well, I'll see you tomorrow. And she came back the next day as if we'd never met. I mean, I said the worst things I could think of to her, insult her. And I did the same thing the second day and the third day. And she kept coming back to, to work with me like it was the first time that she'd ever met me and she was filled with love and compassion. And I realized that my bitterness, my anger, my hostility of what had happened to me, mad at God and all that, when I would hurl it at her, she would just basically absorb it into her great love. And she would forgive me on the spot, never talk about it. She just did it and would come back as one who had forgiven me. Wow. <laughs> and it was so powerful. I knew that her, her love was greater than my anger. And I just thought, man, if I was a police officer and I was, you know, and I was triggering someone and they were hurling all their anger and pain and insult at the fear I produced in them, how would you forgive it on the spot that quick, like nothing had ever happened? And it wasn't like she just, you know, learned to deal with me. It was like I had never said an unkind thing to her. And that's what I said. Lord, can you make me a police officer like she's a nurse? I knew she was a, you know, medical professional. But she was doing more than trying to get me to work out the injury. She was reaching inside of me, trying to make me well. Because of that, this deeply affected what you did when you became a police officer. Yeah, well, so humans can't do what they've never seen. 
I mean, we can read books about riding bikes and swimming, but you can't do you can't do it until you're in a pool with someone showing you how to do it and doing it with you. She was the first one that showed me how to live a life of forgiveness. And she told me about her own life. She was a single mom from West Virginia that worked her way through nursing school. Just this amazing, she was showing me how to swim, I think, in life. And then she was challenging me to do it on the spot. So when I got into the university, I knew what kind of person to look for to learn from after I met her. Not a person that hands you information, a person that's going to live it out in front of you and get you to do it with them. Very much real discipleship. And so I found a wrestling coach in college that was very similar to her. She kind of set the standard. And then, you know, in that guy really impacted my life as in the same way. It was like, I knew what kind of person to look for now. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't necessarily someone in ministry. It was just a person who knew who they were. They understood who they were, and they were giving that identity away to the world. And so when I got into the police department, you know, I knew by that time I had a good sense of how to understand who I was and to give it away in the vocation of police officer instead of getting my identity from being a police officer, which was dramatically different than my coworkers. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. How does one not get their value from their vocation, but instead live out of their identity in their vocation. It necessitates that you know your identity before you come to the vocation, right? Like I would say about that woman, her identity was healer. And she brought her healer identity into the vocation of physical therapy. I know other physical therapists. They do not have that identity, which means she's doing something at a much deeper level than just getting me to exercise or, you know, work out through the injury. And so in the police department, I knew that some part of who I am has to do with reconciling or um, getting rid of conflict. I am one who helps get rid of conflict. And police was the vocation where that identity was free. Right. So once you understand identity, then vocation becomes pretty simple because there's a range of vocations once you understand your identity, then the, then I ask young people all the time, in that identity, what vocations allow that identity to be alive and free? You bring that identity into vocation, you excel in the vocation, not because you're excelling in the vocation, but because your identity has found sort of the field in which it moves and grows. Yeah. Well, there's a quote from your book that you just released recently, Living Fearless. You say, when we come to the Lord in our true identity, we can accomplish more than we ask or even imagine. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's really true. This is something to think about. When we come to the Lord in prayer in our true identity is different than when you're coming to God in a false identity. Mm. Very different. And One complains and the other might lament. The false complains, the true laments, it it cries out to be what it could be and is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. The false just complains about situations. Once I call out to the Lord in my identity, in the vocation of police, then I would have these ideas about the vocation, how to improve it, what to do with people. It caused me to be promoted. It's really fascinating. It was risky, but the result was officer of the year. And then I made investigator all in my first five years. This is a perfect spot for me to read one more quote. You said, I would never have understood the depths of God's wisdom regarding police work if I'd not asked him 
what he knew about working homicides, domestic disputes, armed robberies, and loving defense attorneys. Turns out, the Lord knows quite a bit about literally everything. James, the brother of Jesus, says it plainly. You do not have because you do not ask. So you asked. How was it different? It sounds like you're very purposeful in the way you asked. Right. Yeah. So again, it's like understanding who God knit me uniquely to be in my mother's womb. It's what informs the kinds of questions I would ask God, because being informs doing, always. However you view yourself or determine yourself to be or call yourself informs how you live. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if I hate myself or I think I'm not good enough, then my doing is going to reflect that sense of not being enough. But if I understand who God has made me to be and what he calls me to be, it informs the way I act and it informs the way I talk to the Lord. So if he makes me someone who wants to end conflict or resolve conflict, that's what I actually mourn for in my life. And so I ask him questions about, Lord, what do I do in this situation? How would you bring peace to this conflict level? Because that's that's the kind of questions my identity would ask. It's like, what kind of questions would a cat ask God versus a dog? They would have completely different viewpoints on, and not only that, they see the world differently. That's why that identity is so important to, to understand who God made you to be, what he calls you. And then later we realized, wow, if we built teams based on identity rather than resume and vocation, we'd have much better teams. Explain that a little more, please. Well, for example, we went into a situation overseas. There was an organization trying to work inside a very difficult refugee Muslim scenario and the difficult environment, difficult political and religious issues involved in the team was dedicated and sincere and all of that. And they were they were actually qualified, but they were having no real impact. And the team itself was struggling among themselves. And so we were invited to come in and look at the scenario, you know, what needs to change in the environment? Are we thinking cross-culturally in the right way? And I said, I don't think that's it. I think it's that the team members don't know who they are. They had no idea about identity. So we spent four days working through what is true identity? What is false identity? Once we understand false identity, how do we get rid of it? How do we move to the truth? Four days on that. After the second day, we did an exercise. There was 12 on this particular team. We would go one by one with them and walk them out of the false into the true. And then when we would ask them, okay, What's the name that God calls you or love calls you? And they would listen to the Lord and then they would say it and we would write it down on a three by five card, just one by one. And we would say to them, don't say to anyone what this name is. Then we brought the team back together and we put on a whiteboard in no order all the identities of the 12, just (laughs) randomly up on the board. We've done this many times with teams since then. And then we would ask the team, which one of these identities should be the leader of this team? And they all agreed that there was one identity up there that was something like leader or something like that. And they said that person. And we arranged it so that they all agreed. Yeah, that's a beautiful order to how a team should function. And then they would start saying, you know what? I know who that is. They would all agree. Oh, that's him or that's her. (laughs) The other ones could identify them, but the one whose name it was couldn't identify themselves, you know, originally. Yeah. 
we just said, okay, now we're not going to change any of the circumstances of the scenario. We're going to put you back in, but these are the identities that you need to stay in and work together in these identities to resolve these issues. And when we did that with them, they could resolve the issues. Wow. Because it took away self-protection and self-promotion among the team, which allowed the team to use all the identities to solve the really difficult issues they were facing. But you needed every identity in order to do it. That's just mind-blowingly powerful if you can lock into that as a team. Were there any challenges initially once they left that four-day experience moving into that space of walking in that identity with each other? Yeah, well, we had two, but one was they realized pretty immediately, and this is a, you see this in scripture everywhere, that really what they were encountering weren't challenges to the goals they were trying to accomplish, like the obstacles they were into. The obstacles were challenges to their identity. Like that's where it always started was a challenge to the truth of who they were as an individual. And they didn't know that until they understood who they really were. And then they realized, wow, this is an assault on the essence of who I am. Because once I shift out of the truth of who I am, everything becomes an obstacle. The people on my team are an obstacle. The goal of the team is an obstacle. You know, the people we're working with. And it wasn't really that the attack was on who they were. And so when you look at the scriptures and you watch the uh, Satan tempting Jesus, he starts with, if you're the son, that's the assault. There it is right there. Mm. It's the attack on the identity of Jesus, it, not on the cross or the Messiah vocation. He's ne- if you're the Messiah is never the question. The question is, if you're the son, then yeah. why are these things happening? If that's your real identity, why are these things not going like they should go for a real son who God really loves and who's really pleased in. And once the team saw that, they realized, wow, the battle is really within me about my own identity. Because once I'm in my identity, then I realize I need the other identities to make this thing work. And it brought unity and mm-hmm. towards each other. Well, I'm sure someone listening to this right now is saying, okay, okay, great. I want to know my identity. What do I do, Jamie? It's a very simple and profound process. It's not a formula, but it's a very simple and profound process. And you can watch everyone in the scriptures working through this and Jesus modeling it. We call it the check-in process just for our terms, but it's really the process of confession, which leads to repentance, which leads to transformation. Or if you don't have a Bible background, confession is truth-telling. Everything has to involve truth-telling. If you're not going to tell the truth, then you're obviously we're just working in falsehood. Truth-telling allows for mind change or repentance, metanoia, which metanoia, mind change, allows for metamorphate, form change. So it's truth-tell, mind change, form change, or confession, repentance, transformation. That's the process all the way through. And that's why Jesus says, you shall know and experience the truth. And the truth is what brings the freedom or leads you to the freedom. Just the simple process is to come to the Lord in a state of truth telling or confession, which is just coming to the Lord and telling the Lord everything that you believe to be true about yourself, God, and the others or you know other people in the world. Um, and this is the great commandment. That's what. That's how you come to the great commandment. And so 
for me, the person that first kind of walked me through this process, he said to me, you don't know who you are, do you? Which was way into my profession. And professionally, I was really good at what I was doing, but he was calling me to a higher level. And he said, to do that, you have to know who you are and you don't know who you are. You just imitate other people, which is what most of us are doing. We're just finding successful people and imitating them. So the process is to come to the Lord. And I just said, Lord, kind of like David prays, search me and know me and you reveal to me any way in me that's wicked or offensive to you and you lead me. And so I just was with the Lord and I said, Lord, tell me the things I believe about myself that are not from you. Tell me the things I believe about myself that are not from you. And wow, they just flood my mind, but I didn't have to think very hard. It's like, I feel like I'm not good enough. That's what I feel. I I believe that I'm a disappointment. I think that I'm a coward. Just, Just to be able to say these things truthfully to the Lord, who already knows all of it, I just would never say it. I would never lay it at his feet. That was so profound to me when I discovered what you meant by confession. When someone is confessing to a crime, that is not the same as the confession you're referring to, is it? Right. Explain that difference, if you would. If you're interviewing a suspect and you read them their Miranda rights and all that, you say, I want you to confess. I want you to truth tell. If all they write down on the paper is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, nothing changes. So when Jesus, when God's inviting us into confession, he's not inviting us into apologizing. I mean, there's nowhere in the Bible where you'll see God or Jesus requiring people to apologize. What he wants them to do is tell the truth. Truth tell, you shall know and experience truth and truth will set you free. What the agent or the officer wants the person to do is just tell the truth of what they were involved in or what they saw, right, or how they participated. So if I'm writing my confession to Jesus, I wouldn't tell him I'm sorry. I would say, I don't believe that you're with me. That would be a confessional statement. I don't believe, God, that you're for me. I don't. I think you're disappointed in me. I believe that you're capricious, and I don't know when you show up. Or I don't believe that you'll never leave me or forsake me. That's a confessional statement. But a confession can also be, I'm filled with joy. Confession is just truth. Lord, I I am convinced that you're with me. But you always want to start with telling the truth to God. Lord, I don't feel like I'm capable of doing this. We don't have the resources to do what I feel like you're inviting me into. And I lay this belief of my version of what's true at your feet. That's confession. And repentance is then God telling you his truth once you've given him your truth. And this is what leads to the mind change or the change of direction. You know, so if I say, Lord, I don't believe I'm able to do what you're inviting me into, what do you say? I am unable. That's an identity statement. I am not capable. And then lay it at his feet, clear that out. And because Jesus, the Lord, won't speak truth on top of a lie. The lie has to be given to him, and he will speak truth. He'll speak the truth in place of the lie, not try and put truth on top of the lie. That's what we do all the time. We're always trying to say truth over top of lies that we believe more deeply. So we're having an exchange. Yes, exactly. And that's the exchange. The cross is always an exchange. My shame for his glory. 
I can't put his glory over top of my shame. He became the shame, so I don't have it any longer. So now what goes into that space? His kingdom, his glory, right? So we sweep the house clean, as Jesus says. When you sweep the house clean of the demonic and the lies and all that, if you don't fill it, they will return seven times stronger. So it's sweeping the house clean is the confessional release. Jesus, I give it to you. I'm truth telling. I, I feel inadequate. I feel like you're not here. I don't love my enemy. I'm afraid of him. I hate him. Sweep it clean. But then repentance, let God fill it with his truth so that the lie can't come back. That's repentance. And that leads to a change of form of how you live. That's metamorphic. We're always trying to change the form of things without ever changing our mind about anything or even telling the truth. We just want to change the form of it. And this is why it doesn't work. I'd like you to please share the story of the gentleman who just arrived in a Muslim nation to minister to the Muslims. And a couple guys came to his door in military fatigues and pounded on his door. Tell us that story. Yeah, that's so how the enemy works. So he moved, had moved into this, and this guy's pretty seasoned. He wasn't a, a, a rookie, but he moved into a new country. There's a war going on there with his wife and kids, and he's in this apartment building. And one night, these guys are beating on the door, and he can look, see through the eye hole that they're Wahhabi guys. They're serious. They're part of like the bad guys in the city. And he he won't open the door. He doesn't. He like turns off all the lights and hides. And so when he and I were talking, he was telling me the scenario and he's asking me, like, what would you do? The thing I said to him is like, you don't actually know what's happening. You need to ask God what he wants you to know and what he wants to do, because you're just making assumptions based on things. And I actually told him what I would do is make sure your wife and kids are in the safe room and I would open the door and I would walk out through and pull the door closed behind me and walk out of the building in order to get with them to find out what is actually happening. But your fear and the enemy will tell you you're in danger, you're going to die, they're bad guys, don't connect with them, stay separate from them, all of the things that lie-based thinking does. And so he gets with them and when he's with them, they said, we know you're new in the area, in the building, and we're here to welcome you. <laughs> and we want to invite you to dinner. See, and he would have lived in fear and separation from those guys based on lie, based thinking about himself. Where's God? God's, you know, God's not in control. And that's how those things happen, because we don't take time to just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm afraid here. I think these guys are bad guys. I think my family's in danger. What do you say? That's the confession. And the repentance is God saying, go out and meet him, come out and meet him. And then the transformation is, wow, I now realize that what's true here is going to allow me to go to move in with that group. And what's happened in that city where he lives is remarkable because of those guys. Wow. And that's all what we miss just based on our wrong thinking about ourselves, God, and the people around us. As you're sharing that story, Jamie, what springs to my mind is the religious thinking of, oh, if you say that you're afraid, you confess these things, you're not showing a bold face, you know, I'm not being faithful. I'm not being full of faith if I'm confessing this stuff. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, I say that, show me a person in the Bible that thinks that. They, <laughs> none of them, they're all afraid, right? They're all, I mean, 
One of the things that's constant in scripture is that even when God is specifically inviting people, Moses and Gideon, or Jesus is saying to Peter, you know, he does the miraculous catch of fish. Their reaction to it is never like, oh, this is the greatest invitation I've ever heard. I'm all on board. They all say no. And Mm. Peter says, depart from me. That's how strongly Peter says he witnesses the miracle of the catch of fish. And then he looks at Jesus and falls on his knees and says, get away from me. And then he says, why? Because I am, and he identifies himself, I am a sinful man. Mm. He says identity to Jesus. And in that identity, he's saying, I am incapable of even taking your invitation. Isaiah says it when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. They're saying the identity they believe about themselves, which disqualifies them from the invitation of God himself. Everyone in scripture does it. Thinking of Gideon. That's right. Exactly. I mean, the first thing I say to the Lord is, I'm going to tell you the truth about this. I do not see how this is ever going to work out. I don't see it. And I'm afraid of it. And the reason I'm afraid is because I believe that I'm not able or you're not able, God. But that truth telling is what liberates you. It allows God to say, let me have that fear. Cast your fear on me. Cast your care on me. Give me your burden in exchange for my leading, my yoke, my concern, my righteousness. It's an exchange. And with that, like he says to Peter, don't be afraid. Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. You have to get the lie out of the way. The lie will always prevent you. And the fear, there's nothing wrong with the fear. The fear is just pointing to the lie, saying you need to address this. Wow. So the fear is valuable. But once you address the lie, the fear has done its job and it's gone. It goes away. Yeah. It's a very beautiful emotion, but not a decision maker. You talked about David inquiring of the Lord versus thinking to himself. Yeah, exactly. And the results of doing so. Let's talk about that a little bit here. And then his three-part decision-making process that he had was, should I go, will I win, and how should I go? Yeah, isn't that interesting? So David, you know, who we love, man after God's own heart, you watch him. And this is the beautiful thing about scriptures. We get to watch these people go through all these things, you know, so that we can look at it and go, wow, what did they do? What are we doing? And how does the Lord move in that? And so David, because he's abiding because he's inquiring of the Lord, he doesn't feel intimidated by the circumstances that he's in. And so, you know, Saul's chasing him and Saul's camp encamped around him. And, and he goes down into the camp with Abishai and he's invincible. It's like David Livingston said, I'm immortal until the will of God is completed in my life. That's right. So good. And he's so abiding that he won't take the incident into his own hands and fix it himself. You know, Abishai's like, let me let me spear Saul and this problem will be over. And David's like, no, 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 no. This is God's anointed. And I'm going to be in line with how God talks about these things and not the way I think about them. And I'm not going to self-protect and self-promote. We'll leave it to the Lord. And it's very beautiful. And Saul says, I now see that my life has value in your eyes, David. What is What a statement for someone that's coming to kill you. The conclusion they come to when they meet you is, wow, I'm valuable to you. Imagine, you know, a a terrorist looking at a 
Christian and going, wow, I now realize that my life is valuable in your sight because they think our lives are not valuable to you, that we're, you know, we're enemies and all that. And so that's how David is when he inquires of the Lord. But then right after that, in the same scenario, it says, then David thought to himself, surely Saul will kill me. So he takes his eyes off God and he turns his eyes inward to his own reasoning about the situation which makes his view very limited. Like now he's only down into what he knows. He's not into what God knows and what God says. He's down into what he knows. And the fear comes over him. And he's instead of addressing the fear, why am I afraid all of a sudden? That's what he should have said. Why am I afraid all of a sudden? And then, then the Lord would say, because now you got your eyes in the wrong place. But he doesn't. He lets fear become the decision maker. Okay, so now I'm going to self-protect. And so he leads his men into disaster because his eyes are off God and they're on his own understanding. And what can I do to make this better? And how do I protect myself? And it doesn't matter what God's doing. And it leads them into disaster until he gets back to the place in God's graciousness where it says, and David encouraged himself in the Lord when his men are ready to stone him. And David encouraged himself in the Lord and his eyes are back on the Lord and immediately things change. And so that's where we can watch David. When David's inquiring of the Lord, he has these questions that he asks God. And one of them is, I think it's a great question, is should I go? Like, I have this idea, I feel this sense of to go this direction. Should I go this way? Should I even go do this thing or write this thing or whatever? Should I go? And he waits for the answer. And then he asks, I think beautifully, will I win? I like that. I like that question because it's like Jesus saying, should I go to the cross? Yes. Will I win? The answer is yes, because it seems like we're not going to win there. But the encouragement is, yes, you will. Yes, you will. You will win. It may not look like what you think, but remember, Jesus is the human model of this. There's no such thing as a win-lose scenario in the kingdom of God. As soon as you start thinking win-lose scenario, you've lost. There's only win. There's only win. So that's why, will I win? Yes, that's a great question to ask. Like, do you think if you go in this, there's a potential that somehow you'll lose? Then the Lord is not how you're thinking about this, right? So what if I die? Win. What if I don't die? Win. What if I lose all my money? Win. What if I gain a million dollars? Win, win, win. You can't lose. Jesus never thinks he's going to lose, right? Yeah. And so then finally, then, okay, then how shall I go? Not my will, but thy will be done. Then how shall I go? Should I go? Yes. Will I win? Yes. Then here comes the wisdom prayer. How shall I go? And that answer is very different all the time. The how shall I go? Right. Yeah. How shall I write this book? How shall I start this company? How shall I do this next phase? That's a very important question. So I, I just think those are beautiful questions to ask all the time. What have you found over the years is the number one thing that keeps individuals from identifying their identity? Fear. Just fear. Fear and not understanding fear. And so again, I, the, the, all of Scripture is an invitation. All of Scripture is an invitation. The only way into the kingdom is by receiving. The only way to stay in the kingdom is by receiving. It's not about doing anything. It's about receiving. And out of the receiving comes an overflow of fruit. So when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you to become, he's, he's putting all of it onto himself. 
Mm. Our ability is to respond to it with, yes, I will follow. That's, that's the only thing we need to say is, sorry, yes, I will respond. I will follow. What are you building in there? Yeah, I'm sorry. There's a, <laughs> yeah, a water pipe broke this morning. Oh. They're trying to like get the stuff, but I thought they were done. So, oh. Well, that's okay. Our listeners know now what's cooking. What happens to humans is like Moses and Gideon and us is when we hear the invitation, we take the responsibility of the outcome on ourselves right away. So true. And we immediately, it produces fear in us. And then instead of saying, what am I afraid of? And let the Lord say, you are afraid that this is all on you. And we can give that, we can give that lie to him. And he says, he says, follow me and I will make you the fish. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. We grind on the outcome. Right. We pile the responsibility on top of ourselves. Totally. Right? So the Lord's like, I'm inviting you into to win the world with me. And then it's all of a sudden, it's how many people did you witness to today? Like yeah. it turns into this works-based. And you can see the expression on people's faces change when it switches to that. Mm-hmm. I just want to share one thing with you that just happened. So we've been working in these public schools, working on identity and principals and superintendents and teachers, and they just finished their outcome-based testing for these public schools. And the schools that engaged in the identity process with their teachers and students, their outcomes all went up. In the school that didn't, it went down. The test scores went down. And so when they were interviewing the superintendent of one district was interviewing the teachers they said we told the kids not to get their identity from grades and as soon as they told them their grades went up because that's what they're doing they're letting go of the responsibility of getting their identities from good grades into i'm bringing the truth of who i am to this the challenge of this test but i'm not getting identity from it and they relaxed and they were much more able to really access information in their mind I could feel a relaxing when you just shared what you did about yeah. the outcomes. You know, how can people find out more about you and your book, Jamie? Identityexchange.com is our website. The book Living Fearless, Exchanging the Lies of the World for the Liberating Truth of God is is at Baker Books. It's at Amazon and everywhere else. And also you can access it at our website. Fantastic. I would love to have you pray for our listeners as we finish up here, please. Yeah, absolutely. Father, we just thank you for every person that's listening. Each one of them has an identity that you knit together in their mother's womb, Lord, and we're thankful and grateful for each one. And I pray, Lord, that each person would would just seek you out, Lord, and ask you, who do you say that I am? Just that very beautiful question and exchange all the I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't look right. I don't have any money. All those lies that the world tells us and the enemy tells us, Lord, that they would let you have those lies and that you would take them, Lord, as you're so faithful to do and that they would exchange it. And Lord, you would exchange it for the truth of who they are and speak it to them. Let them find it in in the word and in the spirit and with you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Jamie, for coming back on the show. It was so good to chat with you again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make 
is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.